Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Good morning. Sats don't exist. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, there's a long conversation in the Cafe Bitcoin uh, back channel that I just walked into this morning. I don't know what you guys drank for, for breakfast, but uh, Sats aren't real, Wicked. Interesting. Poor Sam's coming in with his newspaper. He's got his update on the latest macro stuff and then just gets hit with this philosophical in-depth sat combo yeah i'm like reading up on gdp and all this this, this bullshit <laughs> you guys are talking about if sats are real we'll get to it on monday we don't have to waste everyone's yeah. time we can I'm, I'm away macro, next week. macro macro I'm, a, I'm away next week so if you guys are going to try to have this conversation let's just do it again you know, Tomer, Tomer's here and he's not going to be here next week. Tomer's the perfect person. What are you guys talking about? Like, literally, I I was scrolling through, like, a long, long discussion. So, Mac, maybe. I'll... Okay. I don't know. Who wants to go first? Yeah, you, you go, Wicked. You, got, you started it, I think, right? I think Ant started it, but anyways. I, I mean... I guess, and, 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 and I actually flipped my opinion after, you know, thinking about it a little bit more this morning, but the, the whole thing is you have to kind of understand how data is represented in Bitcoin. And when you're talking about an unspent transaction output, right, which is what we usually think of as, you know, this chunk of Bitcoin, right? When you think about that, what it actually is, what what's actually stored on our computer right is this data type which is just an integer represented by 64 bits so it's literally you know 64 you can think of it as like buckets that are either filled or not filled okay but there's no sat it's just a number so each UTXO is represented, its value is represented by a number. And the number can be between 0 and 2 raised to the power of 64. I mean, realistically, it can't be more than, you know, the maximum limit of how many sats can be in the else. system. Right. But as, as, as the data type, that's what it is. There is no individual sats. You know, you can't track a sat. Uh, UTXO doesn't represent, you know, a, a, a ordered number of sats. It's literally just 
an integer, right? Like it's, it's literally just 64 bits of information for each of these UTXOs, and that's their value. I, I take it one further. This, we're having fun here. I don't think anyone needs to say that this is, you know, like Wicked changed his mind in the back channel today already, and I reserve the right to change my mind. But I said it's much more, a, a Satoshi is really much more like a unit of measure, like a centimeter or degrees Fahrenheit or a mile or a pound. You can't have a pound. You can't have a centimeter. You have to have a pound of something. A, a, a centimeter measures or an inch measures a length of something, but you can't, you can't just have an inch. Um, and so a Satoshi is a measure in the same way that an inch is a measure of length. A Satoshi is a measure of value of a UTXO. And it's the only place that, you know, and, and each UTXO comes with its own measurement that says it's got this many Satoshis in it. And well, I see I've contradicted myself by using that language. It's, it's of this size of, as measure a value as measure this many, this, many, this many bits are flipped yeah yeah well you know so it's a it, it's and this is why i think like no model is perfect you know what sam now we, we can enter into the realm of macro analysis like no model is perfect but some are more useful than others right and i think both of these ways of thinking of it uh that there are satoshis or that there are or that Satoshis are units of value that are used to measure the size of UTXOs. They're both applicable in different contexts, right? Part of, I think, what we were discuss what got this conversation going was this discussion of, well, are there individual Satoshis within a UTXO? And, you know, and is there a first one or a last one or a, or a middle one? Are they ordered? Which was really where we were going with this. And, you know, and certainly within the protocol, 100%, they are not ordered. There's there's no way to say oh the, you know this UTXO which has two hundred thousand satoshis in it um, or is of size two hundred thousand satoshis is has one one particular satoshi that's different than the others or is special from the others and you can extract it and spend it the the ordinals schema is is a different layer of reality it's a whole different system apart from Bitcoin that reads the Bitcoin blockchain and makes certain assumptions about UTXOs, arbitrary assumptions determined by the developer who created the Ordinals platform, who says, well, the first, the first in or the first out. So if you split a UTXO in half, the first UTXO, that if you spend it, it's no longer a UTXO now, it's a spent transaction output. And there's two UTXOs that come out of it they come in an order, the, you know, the, the zero index and the, the one index, so the first and the second, but referred to as the zeroth and the first. And he claims that the first Satoshis in that thing go into the zeroth index of the, of the transaction. So you can keep splitting it until you've only got one Satoshi left. And if you follow the history of all of those things, that's where he claims that Satoshi is. But it's you know, you have to believe that Satoshi's exist and you have to take on his presumption, which there's no way of measuring this by looking at it without this other layer of reality. Oh, so lengthy. Tell me if your head is already spinning. Can I, can I chime in with a question on top of that, maybe for Wicked? But, um, what happens if you send the Satoshi um, that the ordinal is attached to into a mixing service? Well, I mean, okay, 
are we talking about <laughs> are we talking about what what they believe happens or are we talking yeah. about can it, you know, can what it, actually can happens it, are we talking pretend or real yeah are we, are we pretending <laughs> here are we putting our pretend hat on or are we actually being well, you know, like does the ownership of the satoshi get lost i'm confused no i mean so according to ordinal theory you can always track where a satoshi comes from because it's always first in first out so when you put into a mixing service you're just like mixing around utxos but you can always track you know, like what's the first UTXO that came out and what's the next. And so when you've put, you know, five UTXO or five inputs into five outputs, then it's like, I guess it's first in, first out, whatever the fuck that, you know, however that works. But, you know, apparently, apparently you can pretend that this but that works. UTXO, and it does. But that UTXO could go to the wrong person. You, right? you will lose it. You put it in a mixer, you're going to lose it. That's why you well, attach you, you a have, spoon you have, to you have it. One, if you, you simply you attach a chance. spoon to it, then you'll never lose it. <laughs> you like, have a one in five chance of losing it. So, or, you know, I'm sorry, a four in five chance. A one in five chance of retaining it because you might get the UTXO on top, I guess. Oh, right, okay, that's right, that's yeah. a very low probability you're going to lose it, guys. Um, but also, hold on to those but also you're, not, you're not losing anything because, again, this is totally made believe you know it's like it's made up so, so you know my, my question is i mean like why does any of this matter because right ordinal? because right now you have a bunch of you know i'll just say it this way uh, retards who believe that they can number sats and that sats actually exist when they don't Apologies to all the noobs who ended up joining Cafe Bitcoin this morning for the first time. <laughs> Thoroughly confused. No, no, no. There's nothing confusing about it. All you have to do is go to the Matrix, watch it, and when the little when the little kid says there is no spoon, that's all you have to know. There is no spoon. Simple. There is no spoonette. I well, always you know, thinking of uh, Bitcoin as like somebody has just described it as water, like digital molten gold moving in and out of UTXO. I was kind of like that analogy. This is why it uses a, a pool's worth of water for each transaction. Yeah. Is that one pool per UTXO or is it multiple pools if you have multiple UTXOs? How, how does that work? This is, why, this is why ordinals are so important. You need to attach a spoon to each UTXO. Well, what's interesting is that I don't know if you guys saw this, but Alex DeBreeze, the you know famous critic of Bitcoin, who puts out all this terrible Bitcoin is bad for the environment research. He's a Dutch central banker. He's always cited in all these government papers, and his models are extremely flawed. But he actually outdid himself by coming out with new research that claims that every Bitcoin transaction basically drains like 16,000 liters of water <laughs> out of the world. This is like the guy that all his research, like uh, Bitcoin boils the oceans and uses as much energy as like individual countries. And now he's saying he basically did this model. I can't believe he actually believes his own research here, but he, he tried to estimate how much every single Bitcoin transaction drains water. <laughs> and I just yeah. like don't even know what to say. Yeah, we, we actually had, I think it was yesterday, um, one of the, we, we talked about this topic a little bit yesterday, and, and we had a guest on, I think his handle is Macro Minutes or, or something to that effect. I, I may have been sticking someone else who actually works in the power 
industry doing water estimation. And he, he pointed out a couple of things that um, make this ridiculous. It's, a, you know, again, the, the research insinuates, the report you're speaking about insinuates that the water is somehow consumed. And it's not consumed. It's like it's it's utilized and returned to its, its source. Right? It's used for cooling a plant <laughs> or or it goes into the atmosphere in the form of clouds. Like water is used in power generation for people who don't know even nuclear power plants or hydroelectric power plants. Well, hydroelectric power plants use water, right? Water flows through turbines and turns them. Every other form of electrical generation we have uses energy to boil water, which turns into steam and the steam turns a turbine. That's every, that's every form of electrical generation we have, whether it's nuclear or coal or natural gas. So they're all using they're all using water, and they're not destroying water. It's it's not nuclear fission or nuclear fusion that turns the water into something else. It boils it from water into steam, and then the steam rises into the atmosphere and forms humidity and clouds and comes raining back down. Or if it's just used to cool parts of a plant, it's directed from a body of water through over the hot elements of the plant and then goes back into the body of water. So I only do the transaction when it's raining because it makes me feel better about myself. Well, no water is actually consumed. (laughs) No water was farmed. What about the the plants, Tomer? What about the plants consuming the water? And I mean, like the ones that grow in the fields. Yeah. How come they're not attacking that? Remarkably, you know, they they do use a lot of water um, and then they return it back to the environment when they're done existing. Like uh, it just the the amount of water on the planet is fixed. You know, the only thing that adds water or destroys water. Well, the only thing that adds water is when it rains down from space, and the only thing that could really destroy destroy water is the process of electrolysis, where you try to separate the hydrogen from the oxygen, and that's a very energy intensive thing. But no, no one's doing that in the in water. The, also in forms generation. Water also forms when hydrogen and oxygen consolidate yes. together, which yes. happens all the time. Right. So we 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 tend to when, you know part of the thing when we're burning hydrocarbons is the the output we take in something that's made out of that's molecules that are made out of carbon and hydrogen surrounding them, and they can be of various lengths, and uh, and we combust them with oxygen, and so we end up with. CO2 carbon mixed with oxygen and hydrogen mixed with oxygen. The hydrogen mixed with oxygen, H2O, is water, and the carbon mixed with oxygen is CO2 carbon dioxide. And that's the whole, you know, that's the whole fossil fuel burning uh, debate. But it has, it actually creates water. So if 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 this guy is upset that we're uh, using water, we're and he's also upset that we're burning hydrocarbons. The act of burning hydrocarbons creates water. Boom. Checkmate. I just got PTSD from organic chemistry in college. What, yeah. so what's your background? Because you sound like you have knowledge outside of editor-in-chief of SWAN. Tomer, Tomer knows everything. Tomer's oh, okay. background I'm curious. I'm curious and I read. I, I did oh, take man. a... Yeah, I, I mean, I did take a uh, university course in, as Sam says, organic chemistry where all of this was covered. We um we covered it yesterday, but if anybody does have power plant specific questions, I'm happy to take those because that's the world I I live in daily. So 
I do um, water treatment slash water savings, energy savings projects for large uh, power plants in the Northeast and the U.S., mostly nuclear, but uh, some combined cycle natural gas as well. So, Macro, um, where is the majority of water wasted? Not in the, I mean, just in general, like, is it in agriculture? Is it in industrial waste? Where, where is most of the water that the, that, that we use? Wasted? What do you mean wasted, Peter? Yeah. Well, you know what, you know exactly what I'm talking about. No. There's actually spoons. So that's what I'm talking about. So, I mean, there's water is moved around in almost everything that human beings do. Right. And I mean, if you're talking a power plant, the most water is moved in cooling the condenser, right? Because to Tomer's point, you basically all a power plant is, is you have something that's heating up water and um, you're taking the steam, using it to spin a turbine. That steam then exhausts down into a condenser and gets recollapsed back into water, goes back into the boiler to get reheated again. Um, so most of those there's not really any loss there. It's, it's pretty much a closed cycle. You'll have some blowdown because you have to get rid of um, impurities that are in the water. And we add chemicals to allow it to be able to cycle up more. But there's really not a whole lot of, quote, waste or loss there. You're talking in the hundreds of gallons per minute. Um, Ma- macro. For, Ma- yeah. macro. I-, I was talking about like, you know, a reservoir has an immense amount of water loss through evaporation. So I was talking in general when somebody says, oh, well, this industrial process, i.e. Bitcoin mining wastes water, I want to be able to point to something that really wastes water. Yeah. And, would, and so would, that, a, would a better way, of, just, just a better way of phrasing it be, is there a process where the water is contaminated to the point where it has to be taken out of circulation? Because I would see that as, you know, not not waste, you know, it's it that that kind of changes the then usable water flow, right? Well, and so the regulations on this stuff are very strict, right? So you're talking about part per billion, part per million restrictions on almost everything, and they're getting tighter and tighter, at least in the US. Um, globally, I, I can't really speak to that because I don't know. Every jurisdiction is different, right? But in the US, the amount of water that is used by industrial processes, which is then made unusable, is almost zero. I mean, none of the plants that I'm working with are discharging anything that's unusable because they would be hit with hefty fines. You will see some plants that are operating now, and this is what a lot of the more modern plants are doing, is they're being set up as what they call ZLD facilities, which is zero liquid discharge. So basically all of the water that the plant uses blows down to a ZLD facility, which is on the, it's, it's located on the power plant's land. And basically you take the water that is very cycled up with a lot of impurities of all kinds you seed that with calcium sulfate crystals and you put it through a flash film evaporator, which basically is just a fancy way to evaporate that water off. They make distilled water from the dirty water, use that back on the front end as very clean water because boilers need very high purity water. And then they take the solids out of that water, push it through a sludge press, which presses out any of the remaining liquids. And then those solids go to a landfill. So there's no 
water, quote, loss, waste at all there, it's either evaporated or used as, it's as distilled water back in the front end of the process for the plant. And that's what a lot of them are doing now for like okay. combined cycle natural gas plants. You can't taint an H2O molecule. An H2O molecule is an H2O molecule. Yeah, it's just, it, it's a universal solvent, right? So everything wants to dissolve into water. Water wants to bring things into solution. Water does not like being alone, right? It wants to pull ions into solution. And like it, Peter. Exactly. <laughs> um, that's, that's why. Uh, that's I why he's here every morning. I won't go there. Anyways, um, the point is it wants to pull things into solution. It wants to reach an equilibrium. And once it reaches that, it'll carry that stuff with it wherever it goes until it evaporates again. Um, so anyways, I don't, I don't want to go like too, uh, too much off on a tangent, but I think the important thing here to consider is basically you have water usage, water consumption, and a water footprint, which is just the water that is being touched by a process the water usage is what is not actually returned, or sorry, the water consumption is what is not returned to the environment, and the water usage is what is returned with perhaps some low level of contaminant. Most of the time, that contaminant is actually just heat. This is why we're going to win, you know, because they come out with water FUD, and little did they know that we have a water expert in Bitcoin just ready to go. And, and the super and the super signaler, Sam. The super signaler is the swimming pool meme. Every time there's some fud and some kind of crazy meme comes out, it's just like signals. Oh, okay, these people actually have no idea what they're talking about. I still yeah. vote that we move from sats per v byte to swimming pools per v byte, but that's just me. The swimming pool one, dude, is just, it's the most embarrassing one of all time. Uh, now, pizza, have you forgotten the Satoshi, the Bitcoin isn't finite, uh, isn't scarce because you can keep slicing pizza slices over and over again? That would, like, people are forgetting how bad our critics are. But this yeah, is Francis, what we're so far. Francis um, Coppola, the economist. You know what's funny, though, Tomer? I mean, bringing it back to the Sats. Bitcoin discussion. She also says Bitcoin is not divisible because Bitcoin and Sats are separate tokens and they can just exchange with each other at the fiat price. So she also says both parties have to be online for somebody to receive. Like she's just someone who doesn't understand anything at all. But yeah, she continues to contradict herself. But yeah, uh, all you have to do is just tell her there is no spoon. Peter, can you change your name to There Is No Spoon? Well, it's true, though, right? I mean, this whole conversation Spooner? keeps circling back to this idea that something doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's kind of a ridiculous conversation. I mean, it's not a ridiculous conversation, excuse me. It's it's the concept. It's like what you were talking about in the back channel, Tilmer. It's 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 something new. It's, it's we can't, as humans, we want to um, associate some kind of visual reality with this thing. And it just doesn't work like that. Everything exists. Well, I not, can't not wait to see this, this uh, research cited in, you know, the next Elizabeth Warren letter. Cause that's what happens. Unfortunately. 
but you know, the truth is on our side. So in other words, uh, like in, um, uh, miracle on 34th street, when they showed up in court with all the letters to Santa that didn't exist, right. We'll just show up with spoons and dump them on her desk. (laughs) Are you watching Christmas movies already? Peter's watching Christmas movies in between Daniel Negreanu's uh, masterclass on poker. Well, as much as I love talking about water, let's let's shift the conversation. How about that? Let's flow to somewhere else. Um, we had two like major deaths this week, I'd say, and Charlie Munger and Henry Kissinger. Uh, you know, rest in peace. I guess you know. I think both deserve a fair amount of criticism for different reasons. But, you know, rest in peace, I'm to speak ill of the dead. But I thought it was interesting. Uh, There's like an article that mentioned that he was kind of planning, Charlie Munger, to invest the $160 billion in cash with that Berkshire Hathaway. And obviously he wasn't able to do that. And that is a huge amount of cash that that company is sitting on. And obviously we talk about inflation a lot. And I saw another statistic that long cash has been the investor's favorite trade in the 2020s in terms of inflows across asset classes in terms of billions of dollars. So almost like $2.6 trillion have flowed into cash um, as opposed to equities or bonds or treasuries. And so you got a lot of people holding a lot of cash and Berkshire Hathaway is just one of those. I'm just wondering, you know, you, you like think about the inflows and if, if they'll ever consider Bitcoin. I mean, Warren Buffett used to talk crap about Apple and now they're the largest shareholders of one of them of Apple stock. And um, you just think about that huge cash position and think about the inflationary environment. You have to think that one day they have to consider allocating elsewhere. And I just wonder, I just wonder if he's ever going to swallow his pride and, and go into Bitcoin. I don't know what you guys think. He'll probably die first. Mm-hmm. It, it's so, an interesting point that you make, Sam, about cash being the biggest trade. It's like cash is, you can't really convert shares into cash. It, it's it's a, it goes both, like the number of shares don't, it's like our discussion about water. <laughs> like the shares don't disappear. The cash doesn't disappear. It's, I guess what you're saying is investors have opted to hold more cash, leave, leaving them holding. Well, I guess, where was that cash before? And what have they traded for? Well, I mean, to be fair, shares of stock and cash can both just be printed out of nowhere. So what does it even mean to trade either? Hey guys, I, w- I want to comment on this real quick. It's tone using the unconfiscatable handle until the conference rolls around next week. And it's uh, like by default, uh, if Berkshire Hathaway eventually does get into Bitcoin, it's going to be so late in the game that it will not allow them to continue to be the dominant company. I mean, this is kind of how the world progresses. Like no single company can ever perpetually be dominant. And uh, eventually, every major company that's at the top today, uh, 20, 30, 40 years from now, it will not be. And new companies will come along. Um, I still, I think at this point, MicroStrategy will be 
the highest market cap company in the S&P 500. I mean, it, it kind of has to, like the whole thing has to get flipped over. So I think ev- uh, like eventually is a long time. I mean, someone's going to take over Berkshire halfway after uh, Buffett. But whoever that is, uh, by the time they invest in Bitcoin, it will not like they will not keep them at the top. Somebody else will be there. Uh, not to not to change the subject, Rook, but uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was just reported to have also died. So clearly, the last generations um, is is dying. I mean, literally, is dying out as we speak. I'm waiting on uh, Schwab, Gates, and Fauci. I mean, when those three, we can start popping some champagne bottles. I feel like they have to wait a while because they go in threes. Yeah, easy tone. Gates, I think, is pretty close to Peter in age. Let's, you know, he's right here. No, he's he's ten years. I I actually so okay. Little known fact: I actually grew up about five blocks away from from him. I think he's about ten or twelve years older than me. That explains a lot. Now we get it. It still baffles me that people like corporations and business leaders are letting Michael Saylor just continue to do this. And they're looking at the micro strategy stock as well as their performance as a business. And they're not being proactive at all. It's just, it's kind of mind boggling to me. Like, I thought that this would happen. I thought that more corporations, that was kind of a narrative um, back in the bull market that we would see more corporations, but it's been a lot more slow uh, uptake on the, on the corporate side. New highs, um, new highs. They're all waiting for new highs. When it breaks fifty, they're all going to FOMO in. So, question for corporations: Will it be easier for them to put shares of the ETF on their on their balance sheet as opposed to you know custodied Sats, which don't exist? That's a great question. I I actually don't know, but I would assume that it's a little harder because like companies shouldn't be like speculative hedge funds buying shares of other companies. Right. So I think it's easier to say we're going to hold our cash in form X than opening up trading accounts. I would think the technical hurdles, um, I think self custody would kind of deter them a little bit, but maybe right now. Well, well, no company is, I mean, no publicly traded company is self-custodying their Bitcoin. They're all using a custodian. So the question is, is it easier to have a custodian holding your Bitcoin or to just buy ETF shares? Most companies don't invest in equities, though. Like, they, they're buying debt or they're... Um, you know, other cash equivalents like treasuries and things like that. So really, it's just about investment policy and classification. I guess they invest in their own equity, right? They do stock buybacks of their own, but that's it. Yeah, certainly. But they're not, you know, on on whole, on a whole, they're not investing in other like securities or other, you know, equity in other companies. It's interesting, though, because that's what Michael, Michael Saylor was saying in the very beginning when he came on the scene in 2020, where he was sitting on this $500 million cash position. And he was like, this is a melting ice cube. And he was thinking about other ways to invest that to protect the, the 
purchasing power. And he was like, I considered equities, I considered yachts, I considered real estate, um, and he landed on Bitcoin. So I wonder if it's a little different. Um, I don't know. It seems like he was considering purchasing stocks and other assets uh, with the treasury. Well, especially... Go ahead. I was just going to say, going back to what Tom was saying, like, how are these companies letting Sailor get this deep ahead? But I mean, also, if you zoom out, it's it, it looks less pronounced, right? Because what does Sailor have right now? Total market, you know, value of Bitcoin, six, six billion, five, six billion. So if he gets a 10x on that, 60 billion in holdings, I mean, it's massive and significant. But looking at like the biggest players in the game, it's not that significant. Yeah, we talked about it yesterday a bit. Like market cap wise, they're still just barely in the top 2000 right now. So it's like order of magnitude, probably still one order of magnitude too low to really be on the biggest players radar. I think probably a lot of people are watching it, but I forget what it was. It was like maybe yesterday or the day before somebody um it was either on twitter or maybe linkedin or something but i saw uh, dylan leclerc and lynn alden both replied to it uh somebody basically tweeted or took a screen grab of sailor announcing another buy and said it was like insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result and they thought that that was a known for michael sailor somehow but Anyways, I just I thought that was hilarious. And I think that's how a lot of people are still looking at this on Wall Street. I, I still don't think a lot of them get it. Some of them do. But if they do, I feel like the game theory is not to go and announce that they understand it. It's to, to get in first and then announce it because you don't have to disclose it immediately. I think it's got to be disclosed maybe at the end of the quarter or something. But I don't know. So one, one thing that's interesting to look at is not just market cap, but you know, cash on hand, because that's really what MicroStrategy, I mean, MicroStrategy has tied its entire market cap to its cash on hand. But really, like if Bitcoin 10x, MicroStrategy would have one of the most liquid treasuries of all companies. I mean, even even Apple only has, and I say only, <laughs> only has $60 billion in cash on hand. So if Bitcoin 10x is MicroStrategy is going to have, you know, equal amounts of liquid you know, treasury as as Apple. Wicked. That's why it's so important. Like that, and this is why um, sailors always talking about how the accounting works, right? So the the accounting rules are really important here because uh, while it would be incredibly liquid when you start looking at the performance based on the balance sheet and how they would have to report it. Uh, because of how Bitcoin is currently classified in the accounting rules, um, this is where the rub is. And so I think um, that is going to be a bigger domino to fall. And we've talked about this stuff before, but the bigger domino to fall um, in this whole scenario, especially for other companies as they look at the performance of Bitcoin and it becomes a, a bigger asset, you know, in um, in. No, in the grand scheme of things, and and the, can, the, the last I checked, Apple has one hundred and sixty-two billion on hand. I think the last. As I just I just checked it. It was it was sixty-one billion. I think. What happened to that hundred billion? I was just going to say to uh, to uh, the point that was just made uh, to, uh, is um, as far as I'm as I understand the, the accounting rules have 
have been agreed to change. They just don't take effect until it, it might be early 2025, but Bitcoin will be accounted for um, on a mark-to-market basis rather than as an intangible asset. Sam, you probably know this better than I do, but I'm just uh, trying to re- remember. So it, it's like it's known that it's going to happen. It may be that many companies are going to wait until it happens to do it. Right? Um, maybe that they're going to wait even even longer. Uh, but in the meet, but you know, uh, this is all an artifact, right? Very few people value uh, microstrategy on the basis of what its Bitcoin is valued at on its balance sheet, but rather what it's valued at at market. Tomer, I totally agree. And, and but let's face it, like the people who are on, you know, investment committees or on boards for these these companies, or even like the bean counters that are. Um, you know, responsible for the the balance sheets and the CFOs, they're pretty conservative folks overall. Like they're not, they're not moving on this. Yeah. They're not moving on this until, until the, until it's done. Right. Like it's gotta be, it's gotta be finished. So they're not going to front run it. They're not, you know, cowboys. They're, they're, they got to operate within the rules. This is the responsibility of the treasurer of a company. And I know when I worked for a very long, for a reasonably large public company, it was worth billions of dollars. The tre- and I, I had a couple of years where I worked in the corporate office. So my office was two doors down from the treasurer. He came in early. He made sure to get the money out of repo the night before. He talked about where he was investing our pension plans and, and stuff. And and then he played solid there for about seven hours of the day. And anyone, anytime he walked past his office, he was actively engaged in playing solitaire on his computer. So And a very conservative guy. Like, not a bad guy, but he just didn't have that much... Uh, to do, I, I I'd be curious today if he's I, like I'm certain that he's not a bitcoiner. Uh, he was he was not into gold at the time either. But it's um, the treasurer. The treasurers are not bold. Like they're the antithesis of what Michael Saylor is, right? They're not bold risk takers. They're conservative, risk averse individuals. Yeah, you just have to understand, you know, their their responsibility and their place in in a corporation. My, my background is, you know, I've spent the bulk of my career, um, working with these folks, consulting with these folks, um, providing services from, you know, a bank perspective. So I've seen how slow they are to move, how difficult it is to get them to adopt any technology, how difficult it is to get them to see, you know, a lot of things. And so, um, if, if the rules aren't, aren't in their favor. Yeah, this it's going to be a little while. I just love that micro strategy chart that he shares from time to time about the performance of Bitcoin since they first allocated, mainly because of the timing of it. Um, it was like very early summer of 2020 when MicroStrategy first allocated to Bitcoin. And to me, it just kind of is a case study of how Bitcoin has preserved the purchasing power during this period of elevated inflation, whereas everyone says like, oh, it wasn't an inflation hedge, but Bitcoin's a leading indicator, CPI's a lagging indicator, they're not gonna move up simultaneously. And MicroStrategy to me is such a great piece of evidence that Bitcoin has protected the purchasing power uh, of that company, uh, the company's treasury uh, during this period. And, and I think people can just look at that and just point and say, like, hey, actually, he did allocate to Bitcoin before all this inflation came. 
uh, it'd be doing pretty well. Specifically compared to other asset classes like gold, S&P 500, bonds, etc. So that's why I love it. So they they announced their Bitcoin strategy. What was it like three months after the last halving, right? Something like that. Yeah. Do you think Do you think the next kind of large institution is going to announce before or after the next halving that's coming up in about four months? Well, I would say, you know I would say he. It's not so much the halving. I would say they announced that. Um, allocation strategy three months after the Fed and Treasury went bonkers, uh, you know, printed trillions of dollars. And it macro. just so happened to go and macro, macro. Having, And, um, you know, I look at the macro picture and the having the timing of these things are, is, is so crazy, but it, it does seem like things could get a little shaky around the having once again. It's one like the bank term funding program is set to expire. That's uh, where a lot of macro analysts are looking out and saying, hey, these interest rates, if they stay at these levels, these corporations are going to start to feel it uh, the longer it goes on. And so you could start to see maybe something start to break. Everyone's kind of talking about that. Maybe it happens around the halving again, and then they come out with QE and, and all the printing again. And then you'll have another corporation, just like MicroStrategy. I think that's kind of the more likely scenario. What came first, the halving or the printing? I think, too, we could, you know, the, the ETF is the, is the big wild card there, too, because it's going to be a lot easier for different institutions to go, hey, we're going to adopt a strategy here before the halving in anticipation of the halving and what comes afterwards, which I think is why there's so much pressure, because obviously the, the asset managers stand to collect handsomely from from that so i think that'll be a um you know a key part yeah i think um micro strategy is kind of lightning in a bottle like they they did take advantage of uh being able to announce a strategy but they also saw it very clearly and you know fortunately for sailor he had the ears of his board, you know, he had control um, to an extent where he could um, educate these guys and get them all on the same page. He had a willing CFO who, you know, is, I, I believe is now the CEO of the company or the, at least the president. And um, I, I would tend to think that the days of companies coming out and announcing this as a, a, big strategy are probably over. I think corporations will start allocating to it, but I don't think it's going to be like big splash, like the conviction you see out of Sailor and his his team and his board. I think it'll be similar to like how you saw companies having internet strategies, right? Like each company kind of had its own internet strategy <laughs> at the turn of the, the millennium, right? And now it's going to be like the Bitcoin strategy, but it's going to definitely become less and less impactful as more and more, you know, adopt a, a Bitcoin strategy. Eventually. I think um, it's been a little disappointing or maybe surprising to see that no one's really followed Sailor and there are people who run companies who control the board because they, you know, have so much of the, controlling or voting stock they could do what exactly what 
Sailor does. Um, they don't have to be as big as Sailor's company, but there are plenty of more than a handful. Let's say that it's not that common, but there's a significant number of companies where the CEO controls the board and is the founder and con- controls the voting chairs and could easily do what Sailor's doing. I just think it takes time. And, and the accounting is a big piece of it, but it's also just that it hasn't been legitimized the way that gold has been. And I think with the BlackRock and Fidelity and others getting their approval, that'll legitimize uh, Bitcoin a lot more in the minds of these um, pre-coiners. You know, what's interesting is when we talk about treasury reserve asset, and it's uh, this term that suddenly come up, and, and that's mostly cash. I've heard quite a bit about central banks all over the world now beginning to hoard gold, to accumulate gold, which is something that they presumably did before beforehand. We, I haven't heard about corporations hoarding gold, um, other than, of course, maybe gold mining companies. Sorry, yeah, they don't do it, and the gold mining companies. No, you're absolutely right. They they don't do it. The gold mining companies tend to sell their gold, not hold on to it, um, because of the risk of, you know, having to sell gold at a low price when you're barely making money or in negative cash flow because gold prices have plummeted, and then you're selling the gold at the bottom that you are hoarding and hoping to make money on. And then the last thing is, I've been asked this before. On Wall Street, when, when um, people post collateral, like not people, but institutions post collateral, gold is never, ever really part of it. I worked, I only worked in fixed income, meaning like bonds and commodities and stuff, but gold was pretty much never used as collateral. It's like that unpopular, maybe because <laughs> it's physical and pain in the, I, I pain in the area. The quick point it's, I was it's make not- is that- Oh, oh This is quick, and I think you'll want to build on it, but it's like corporations, like we tend to think of American corporations, and so for them, the U.S. dollar is their treasury reserve asset. It's also their native currency. But when you start to look abroad and, and companies are making profits who are not American companies, are they, what are they putting their, their treasury in? Are they, are they holding on to their local currency? Are they holding on to U.S. dollars? Are they holding on to other things? I know in America, a lot of what's happened is, although we, we talk about Apple, which is kind of the exception, many companies that had uh, accumulations of profit were, were using that money to buy back their shares and retire their shares because this would bid up the price of their shares. It, was, it would increase the value and it was a tax efficient use of, 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 of dollars that they had if they didn't have it to spend on R&D and other things. In many cases, they probably should have saved it for a rainy day or had it for R&D. But it's kind of like there's there's not much, there hasn't been much creativity in terms of thinking about treasury, I think, because of the fiat-mindedness of, of the world. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Bob. It's just it's this question I have in my mind. What People haven't really thought about treasury as an important thing. And if the dollar is becoming less stable and less reliable, is it something that people are going to start to think about or or not? And when, if so, when? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, Tomer. It's it's really like if you're if you're an investor and you're looking at investing in a company and you see that their investment policy allows for them to buy commodities like gold, like 
are you going to invest in that company if they're sitting on a bunch of gold? Probably not, because that means that they've really, they don't understand the global debt markets and their ability to um, raise capital based on their core business. And there's just no reason to put cash flows into something that, um, you know, may maintain its value over time versus the dollar, because you should be using those dollars to make, and you should be investing in your core business. So like, it's just, it's very taboo to um, put a part of your treasury into gold, unless it's for some part of your core business that, that makes sense and is accretive to the, to the core business. And for most corporations, that's just not the case. And it would just never be a part of a corporation's investment strategy. Uh, um, and, and maybe that's why, you know, to some degree, it is difficult for folks at, in these positions to see Bitcoin as part of their investment policy, you know, to make this big change because gold is just, you know, this, this could be considered digital gold. It's what some people have called it, you know, over the years. And um, if people think about it that way, then they're, they're probably saying, well, this isn't part of our investment strategy for, you know, physical gold. Why would it be for, for digital gold? So, you know, we're not going to pay attention to it. Yeah, it's really hard, right? Like a companies that have cash can can either sit on the review, they can sit on the cash or put it into short-term deposit deposits. They can convert it into inventory, you know, spend it and build up build up inventory, or they can get rid of it and use it to buy back shares. And that and and that seems to have been their universe. And then Michael Saylor shows up and says, "Well, we convert it into we can convert it into a different kind of money." Um, and we can, and then we can actually leverage our balance sheet to convert into a different kind of money. So it, it's it's really a very unique treasury strategy that MicroStrategy has, um, and it, it's com it's completely thinking outside the box of the way that treasury um, would normally be viewed. I imagine with with rates where they are too, they're finding it pretty attractive still to just you know buy short term bonds or fixed income with their treasury and you know they're like why would we why would we allocate to bond or gold or bitcoin when we can earn a fix on yield here but maybe they're not thinking about the currency debasement and you know what those bonds are actually denominated in you know maybe they just haven't thought through that process yet yeah or well they're, they're not thinking it's their responsibility to protect against the threat of currency debasement i, I don't want to say that like every treasurer and every ceo and cfo in in the world is not concerned about debasement. There, there's probably quite a few who, you know, there's probably quite a few businesses that are reeling from in, inflation and cost of inputs and, and wondering what to do, trying to pass along cost increases and, and seeing if they can match it. Like it, it's probably a really difficult challenge, but this, uh, the ability to break out of that model of, of thinking and to say, well, maybe we actually need to protect ourselves against currency debasement with hard money. I think it's just not something that is is in anybody's playbook yet, except for Michael Saylor's and and all the Bitcoiners. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think they they're using cash as a tool. So if you if you're 
if you're a treasurer, you're just saying, well, we don't have a need for this cash right now. So let's get a yield on it. And we're going to do that in the safest yield, you know, that the safest way that we can do that, which is, you know, traditionally uh, government bonds. And so that's, that's the real issue. It's like a paradigm shift. It's completely changing and flipping on its head what these guys have been taught and what everybody's done, what the standard is for years and years. You started to see different it's, conversations around the banking failures, though, as well, in terms of counterparty risk with, with their treasuries, like who's actually holding it. Um, that kind of became a topic of conversation where they were like, okay, maybe we have to think about counterparty risk a little bit um, for our business. And speaking of censorship or counterparty risk, like, Tomer, you're Canadian. I don't know if you saw this like Bank of Canada report on CBDC consultations. Oh, yes. Um, I, I want to share it in the net. Give me just a second here. This is. Uh, you see that? Uh, yeah. I think I, I mean, Mags shared it. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I'll let, let me just share it in the net so that people can follow along the thread for a second. And then I will. Um, and then I and then I can maybe just. Uh, talk about it a little bit and other people can listen you know canadians have gotten a bit of a uh a rap as as sheep uh after everything that that has happened it was maybe deservedly so but not long ago the bank of canada canada central bank the equivalent of the federal reserve in canada put had a consulting company put out a survey to get canadians opinions about ultimately cbdc's the digital canadian dollar they called it amongst calling it a CBDC in the report. And they got a very significant number of responses, 86,000 responses, I think. Uh, and they were overwhelmingly, um, oh, it, it's almost like the, the the cast and crew of <laughs> Cafe Bitcoin was answering the questions, right? Um, so I, I think I've shared it in the nest. Um, and it's a thread of something like nine, um, nine links of, of charts. So I, I shared the first one. The first one's uh, perhaps not the most telling uh, of things, but but eighty six percent of responses were negative towards uh, a CBDC, and a full fifty two percent said, I, "I it's a bad idea. I don't like it. I will not use it." Um, and and many other people said things like, uh, "People in power serve themselves and are selfish. Privacy will be jeopardized. There's loss of individual choice. It's." Um, Access to money could be restricted, so it was overwhelmingly negative. But when when um, when you do market research, you know you always ask the question. I'm I support this statement. I, I strongly disagree. I disagree. I agree. I strongly agree. And so th this survey is broken out uh, in into those kinds of things. And it, and there were questions around like, do you trust the Bank of Canada to issue? This is the second uh, chart in the thread. Do you trust the Bank of Canada to issue a secure CBDC? Um, Eighty-seven percent of people said no. Either somewhat disagreed or strongly disagreed, but seventy-nine percent strongly disagreed, and only four percent strongly agreed. In market research, you sometimes take uh, the strongly agree and divide it by the strongly disagree to to get a measure of what's called momentum. So usually, if you measure like, what do you think of our brand? You, you'd get, well, how many people are highly favorable, how many people are highly disfavorable. And the ratio, you you try to, you want to have two or three to one people strongly 
support you versus strongly disagree. Here, the ratio is inverted. We have almost 20 times as many people strongly disagreeing as agreeing that they trust the Bank of Canada the ratio is a pure dollar. This is like, this is unprecedented off the chart level of mistrust. They ask, um, do you, what do you trust in terms of organization? Financial institutions, again, like uh, over 60% of people, 62% of people uh, somewhat or completely distrust financial institutions. 46% strongly distrust them or completely distrust them. And only 4% completely trust financial institutions. The Bank of Canada itself, 58% completely distrust it. 5% trust it. Our, our beloved Trudeau government, 74% of, Cana- of people who responded to this survey completely distrust the federal government and only 3% completely trust it. These are, these are numbers that are really off the charts. Technology companies didn't fare that much better. So it was just a damning and scathing review. Um, and pe- people also said that they don't trust the Bank of Canada to follow what, what they answered here and, in, <laughs> and to validate them. You know, the Bank of Canada should have said, well, Canadians clearly don't want this, so we're abandoning it. But no, in the cover letter, they, they announced that they'll continue to explore how to issue a, a digital currency if, if demand for one uh, should, should arise. But people can look through this thread. There's just, there's just incredibly um, decisive uh, feedback from the vast majority of respondents who Again, who match up to the demographics of the country. Like there's a demographics uh, chart in here too. It, it's not right. click the link to go in, but the, the demographics match the age, income, geographic distribution, all that stuff about Canadians. So it seems to be a good survey. And there's also, if you go into the report, all these quotes, and these quotes, again, sound like they're coming from Bitcoiners. So the spirit, I guess for me, it's like the spirit of what we talk about here is not a fringe idea. It is an idea that a lot of people are very concerned about. Um, and when you see Millet winning an election in Argentina and you see a response like this from the masses in Canada, it definitely says that the, the idea of liberty, the idea of restricting government is very much alive, not just in the United States, but everywhere, perhaps even more so in areas where people's rights, where people feel that their rights are in jeopardy. And, and that's a good thing. Right? It doesn't necessarily mean that our, our benevolent leaders are going to act benevolently, but it is, uh, it's a good indication. So that's my ramble. I see BJ is here, and uh, he's also a Canadian. But uh, anyone can speak to this. You don't have to be Canadian to respond to it. Yeah, Omar, I was going to... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to jump into that as well, saying, uh, you know, on the uh, political activism side, people who are even non-Bitcoiners, people that myself and others try to orange pill inside the political parties and outside the political parties. Uh, you know, that example of freezing our bank accounts uh, during the protest, that resonated with everybody across the political spectrum, even the people who were against us. Uh, that actually turned some people in favor of us when they thought, oh, wait, this goes a little too far and the government's got a little bit too much control over our money and i think that's why you're seeing such pushback so um yeah no very it's 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 amazing that the government is still even people in their own party who i know who are vehemently against this they still want to push forward it's absolutely crazy the distrust that canadians have of their government right now is is unprecedented you know not just the dis- the level of distrust and the willingness to articulate the level of distrust that we have of our government here is 
off the charts, right? It's like it's 90% of the population mistrusts the government and is prepared to say so. Yeah, and Tomer, you've you've never seen it this way before, I'm sure, in your life. I haven't. Like people across the spectrum, they don't even know why, many of them, why they don't trust they don't trust the government, but they're very vocal saying they're all corrupt. I don't trust any of them. Have you seen this sort of before in Canada? No, I, I, I've never, I've never quite felt it to the same degree. I, I just think we've had, we've had a government in for long enough now that has really acted with contempt towards the truth, contempt towards the processes of parliament, our, our, our government system, and and contempt towards Canadians, Canadians' broadly held values, which were peaceful, orderly. You know, Canada, America has. Uh, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Canada has peace, order, and good government, and we haven't really had any of those things. We've had chaos, uh, not certainly not any sense of peace, and and certainly not any sense of good government. There's been endless scandals of every type, whether the financial scandals or Trudeau coming out wearing blackface or him terminating his his female ministers who were educated but stood against him corrupting the law like it's just been really ugly and and it's destroyed trust in the government in a way that was unimaginable in canada 10 years ago let alone 40 or 50 years ago and also just to add to that amongst their people like on that side who started to reach out to myself and others finally um in the political structure i mean you guys know central banking you know who they're already eyeing to replace trudeau for when he eventually you know, is out of office because it always happens. Believe it or not, Mr. Central Banker himself, Mark Carney, which just makes it infinitely worse. So any trust that they might have tried to build, well, that just went through the window and they're going to try to shoehorn him in there no matter what. So Mark Carney is not going to do it. Mark, ironically, Mark Carney is now on the board of directors of quite a few Canadian resource companies, including the uranium companies. Um, and, 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 this, not, and he was a very strong environmentalist, uh, and now he's still a very strong environmentalist, but agrees that nuclear uh, is a clean and environmentally friendly thing. So he's kind of, he's kind of coming around, but I think he just makes way too much money as, uh, as with, with all the things that, you know, he was the, the, he was the central banker of Canada. He was the head of the central bank of Canada and the Canadian currency at the time did so well, it exceeded the value of the U S dollar. He was then recruited to be the head of the Central Bank of England, uh, His Majesty's Royal Bank or whatever that's called. And then when that was done, and he didn't do so well there, the, the pound found its way to par with the U.S. dollar practically, despite having been worth a lot more. Uh, and so then he came back to Canada where uh, there were lots of positions to be on boards of Canadian companies. And there's a lot of really you know, well-paying board positions in Canadian companies, because especially if you go to the next. Um, natural resource industry like oil and uranium and gold, nickel and copper and all that kind of stuff. I don't. I don't think he'll take any amount of money. For he's got such an easy life right now. Yeah, but remember, people in politics and Mark Carney is a little bit of a uh, a big time celebrity wannabe always jumping in front of the cameras. He's quite often at the World Economic Forum. And when you get to that level, it's no longer about money. It's about legacy, right? It's not even about power. I mean, that's a big part of it, but it's just about uh, a legacy for people who that's that sort of ego. 
And I think, you know, if there's one thing we can do and reach out to people in the Bitcoin community, uh, please be vocal about never having, allowing a central banker to gain control uh, over the reins of political power. Because I think that is just, you know, it's going to be the same policies as Trudeau, except that Carney is charming and persuasive and he can complete a sentence. And that would just be, be the death nail of the country, I think, personally, but. Who knows? Yeah, it would be really interesting to see a, a showdown between him and Poitier. But we're getting into Canadian politics a little too much, probably for our odd party audience here. Tom, hey, I was only going to ask you guys while we were on that report. Um, <clears throat> it's hit, it's said in that report that the Northwest Territories um, significantly use cryptocurrencies more than any other area. Is that just a geographical like? demographic thing or is there a reason to that that you guys see as, as canadians and then the second there's not thing, even enough people who live in the northwest territories to form a statistical like that's that's a part of the country where there there are i i i can't understand it but it's there's just not very many people who live there and, and the population density is like one person per 100 square miles or something Dom, I used I used to go there uh, when I was in the in the diamond industry because uh, the company I worked for was a consultant for the Acadie mine. So I used to go to uh, Yellowknife all the time, and yeah, there's more. It's arguable arguable if there's more polar bears than people if you go to Yellowknife. I mean, they, we're talking very small cities, but uh, banking is a nightmare. Like, there's no bank. <laughs> there's there's just it is commerce is impossible that's why part of the reason everything is you know 5x more expensive up there than it is in the rest of the country you know you don't have roads for half the year because the roads are ice and the ice melts and you can't get goods into your city so i wouldn't be surprised because i know there are people in indigenous communities that uh, are aware of bitcoin there are people who have reached out to them uh, i had some uh, during the convoy actually i had some private conversations with uh, one particular chief. And of course, I mentioned Bitcoin. And so that community is always looking for for something to elevate the um, standard of living for people who live in the north. And then you have a lot of truckers and stuff that go up there uh, for seasonal work. So I wouldn't be surprised just because it's impossible to do banking uh, up there. Like you are in the Arctic. So that would be very cool if that was an upward trend. Yeah, the only other thing I'll say before we move on from the report is if you guys haven't looked at the quotes they put in the report for people who responded, pretty some good, some funny ones on there that you can uh, retweet. If you've got it in front of you, Dom, maybe you want to read a couple. I'm just I'm scrambling on my phone here, but they, I think these quotes some are funny, but but they're they're all very very principled, and you know there's nobody saying please govern me harder. They're like. I don't trust you and don't you dare touch, you know, touch me with this. Yeah. You got some like leave cash alone. We don't need it. So don't waste any more resources on it. Some of them are a little more sophisticated. Um, You know, please leave the dollar alone. I don't want to be digitizing this aspect of my life, but, but overwhelmingly negative, even for those who, you know, aren't responding with anything about Bitcoin or just saying that they want to maintain cash and anonymity. Which is very interesting because for them, you know, if what you guys say about Canada, you know, that they're going to move on anyways, um, Bitcoin will, will easily fill that gap uh, for what used to be anonymous transactions, you know, with cash. 
What's up, Mr. Hoddle? Hey, guys. I have a question. Um, do you, does anybody know if you're from Iran and you want to mine Bitcoin, like, how, what pool do you connect to? Does anyone know this? I can find out for you. I've been uh, spending a lot of time in the Middle East and uh, definitely been running into more people from Iran as the place opens up. Yeah, yeah, please, because I'm dying to know if you're on like the sanction list, where do you connect to? Like if you're in Russia right now, what pool are you connected to? Well, Ocean just mined a block. I'm, uh, I'm optimistic on that pool. Uh, I think you have some criticism. I mean, Ocean is a U.S. pool, so I doubt that Luke's going to allow anyone from Iran to connect to him. That's why, that's why I was asking. But how would he know, right? Like, uh, isn't that the whole point? You just connect with, uh, uh, w with the Bitcoin address to get paid out? For now. No, no you, your IP, you're connecting, your service connects to their node. And if they see that it's coming from Iran, they probably have to block that. I'm just trying to think that um, we need more pools from different countries all over the world, especially well, that there are, are there, there are pools in Russia, right? I mean, they couldn't give a fuck if it's a Iranian pool. That's, I mean, they actually work with them. That's what I mean. Like, if there's a Russian pool, Russia doesn't give a shit about Iran. So yeah, Russians will allow Iranians to connect to them, but I don't see a Russian pool. Like, I was I was looking. Like, there's no pool that's from Russia right now. I think we need to decentralize pools a little more. I think that's what that's what needs to happen. Why? Why don't you think there's a Russian pool yet? No, there, there's definitely there's definitely pools in Russia. Uh, and a big, no, a there's Russia. There's Russian miners, but there's no pool. So, like you know, you have you know, obviously there's people mining in Russia, but there's no pool. I mean, if there is a pool, it's so small that we can't even see it. So, we need to decentralize pools. Like decentralizing mining is one thing, but I think decentralizing pools is uh, is the next step here. Agreed. Because it's a problem. I mean, like if you're from North Korea, and you know you have all these pools that are not allowing you to connect, that are not allowing you to connect to them. Well, they need their own pool then. You know. Does Stratum V2 address this at all? No. No, it'd still be. All right, good talk, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Otto. Why, can, why, why can't a miner just go through a VPN before connecting to a pool? I was going to say something like that. Too bad Hodel dropped off already. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that there are no sats here how do mr Hoddle's back on mr Hoddle, why can't a miner use a vpn to obfuscate the ip address um uh, i i heard vpn and pools most people don't have their routers connected to a VPN. Like it's usually just an isolated device. But yeah, I mean, if you have a, if your whole network is, you know, running it through a VPN, you could do that. But you want a good connection to the pool. So the key is to have a good connection so your shares get validated. Um, that's why you don't really want to go through Tor or through like a VPN. You, you want that good connection. But I mean, like some people might not have a choice. So there's that. 
Yeah, also like traveling through some countries that tend to, uh, I guess, be a little more, um, well, what's the word I'm looking for? Censorship uh, focused. Like, for example, there are, uh, when I'm in the UAE, like sometimes you they will not let like certain connections you cannot use a vpn like uh like the isp knows if you're routing through a vpn on some vpn so it's like the same problem that he just described in pools it's also for vpns so like sometimes the uh the isp knows you're running a vpn and they will not let you use it uh, i've ran into this problem as well uh, which is why i tend to use uh, ironically, my American SIM cards everywhere I travel around the world because it's like a self-built-in VPN. Now, when you have an American SIM, it still routes you through an American IP, uh, no matter where you are in the world. So this way, I get to access certain things on the internet in certain countries just by not buying a local SIM. And then I can avoid running a VPN because it's actually better than getting a local SIM and then running a VPN on your phone because you still lose access to certain things because it's like VPN, you can't even connect to the internet. So I've ran into this issue as well. Yeah, I mean, like, that's a problem here in America too. You could have a VPN and certain websites have blocked that certain IP address because they had a lot of people going through it. So, but like, that's a cat, that's a cat and mouse type of game. You just use a different server until one isn't blocked. But with pools, you know, it's a little different. You can't just like keep popping pools because you're trying to accumulate the hash rate in order to be viable. Um, so it's it's a little harder to do that with pools. But um, yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem that needs to be fixed, and it can be fixed. But it is a problem right now. Like, you know, if you're a miner, if you want to mine Bitcoin, and you're from one of these countries, you're gonna have a hard time. Hey guys, if I can just jump in, um, I got a friend of mine. In Florida, who um, has a startup that uh, they just got an offer that they're trying to put together. But any, anyways, what he does, what he's, what they've created, his team, they have some device. It's like a prototype device. They were trying to sell it, uh, government contracts, other companies, whatever it is. But essentially, I don't know how it works, so I can't really explain it. He showed it to me, but you connect your phone through the cellular device to this what looks like a hotspot router. But that hotspot router has an infinite number of uh, IP addresses. And you can, it's, it's not a VPN. It's something really different. And it goes through some server somewhere. I don't know how it works. Uh, but uh, Tone, I don't know, maybe I can connect you with him. You can ask him some questions because that might actually, it's designed so you can go anywhere in the world and not have these sorts of restrictions and censorship or certain countries that block VPNs or whatever. It's designed to um, to work around all of that stuff. It's really cool. I just don't understand technically. He was explaining it to me one time, and I just completely got lost. It gets so technical. So I don't know if you guys are interested. If so, I can uh, connect you. Cool. All right, I'll see what I can do. And I'll see you in Vegas anyways. And uh, maybe when we're in Vegas, we have a couple minutes. We can call him on the phone. He can explain it to you. Yeah, or tell him about the event. See if he wants to join. <laughs> yeah, right, tone, you know what? Tone, I'll see you in Vegas at the final table. Yeah, he's in Florida, so it's not a not not difficult to come out. All right, I'll see what I can do. And hold on, you you need to come to one of these events as well. Don't worry, I won't dox you. Yeah, I know. I will one one of these years. I will. I promise. His his voice will dox him. 
I mean, I'll, people know who I am. Many people have met me already, so I'm not yeah, too worried about it's, that. It's not, it's not his voice. It's the loudness of his voice. If he just starts speaking to you in the corner of the room, the whole room will hear, no matter how big the conference room is. Hey, um, is, is it okay to, to switch the conversation? Are we done with this now? Yeah, um, I think so. so. So the UAE just came out with a $30 billion climate fund that they're that they're going to sponsor. And I, I was curious to know, Tone, since you've been in the Middle East, do you think that investment into uh, Marathon's uh, um, mining venture in Bitcoin mining venture in the UAE is going to be part of that uh, part of that climate fund? You know, I find the UAE, they're incredibly smart and they're very uh, they're very diplomatic. And uh, they tend to know what they're doing. There is a miner in the UAE. Uh, I think it's called Phoenix. They're 7% of the global hash rate. And just this one miner. And they're expanding because they're using nuclear energy to mine, which is uh, the Middle East is going to completely dominate mining. I mean, uh, the, the, the rest of the world needs to start competing very, very soon uh, because the, even the U.S. will not be able to compete with the UAE if they're putting most of their, you know, half their nuclear energy that they're, they can always build more nuclear reactors because they have the money uh, and the expertise to do it. Uh, so uh, this climate bill, right, it's kind of like the UAE and like these cities like Dubai and Abu Dhabi, they make no sense, right? They're in the middle of a freaking desert. It is uh, like, it's like the middle of the Arizona desert in the summer. Like it's unbearable, right? And yet they have uh, malls with ski slopes and penguins running around, right? They're using massive amounts of energy. And yet the world doesn't give them shit about how much energy they're creating and how much energy they're doing. And one of the reasons why the world doesn't give them shit is because they're smart enough to globally announce a 30 or a $40 million dollar we will help the world, you know, climate change bill. <laughs> like it is like almost laughable if you think about it the right way. So um, you got to read through the headlines. And uh, yes, they, they, they are very into mining and forget the mining. Just like just what they've built in the middle of the desert is incredible. And it's all based on spending more energy than their neighbor. And their neighbor being the rest of the freaking world because it's the most unbearable environment ever. Um, so it, it's just it's just funny when you think about it the right way. And Dubai is also known for highly fuel efficient vehicles, right? Um, you're being sarcastic, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everything <laughs> with a V12 and a thousand horsepower, right? Like, like I will, I will say you will occasionally see a Tesla, occasionally, <laughs> and I have no idea where they're charging it. Probably at home. I think it's really interesting too that um, with the cops, all the cop climate stuff being held there, I think you're going to see, and this is something that I've been following closely just because it's the world that I live in, is that you're seeing a, a posture shift in global leadership for the most part on nuclear. And um, 
it's just really interesting to see that um, alignment between some of these very large Bitcoin miners in both the U.S. and the UAE, and I'm assuming it'll probably soon be elsewhere. But I could see it being something along the lines of like you get a plant built and before you get the distribution infrastructure in, you can co-locate a large mine and basically instantly monetize the energy from that plant while you're building out the rest of the infrastructure to put it on the grid. Um, because that's also a, a large part of the cost and the timeline for doing this stuff. So I don't know, to me, it's just really interesting. And, um, I think that they're going to be one of the leaders, both them and South Korea. Um, South Korea is basically building all these plants for people. And you're seeing a lot of countries come out now and say, Hey, we want to build nuclear. And then South Korea is just killing it right now with, winning the bids for these things and they're building reactors like in two years and under budget and the u.s is like 15 billion dollars over budget and can't even finish them in a decade so i think you're going to see it outside of the u.s happen across the board in the next 10 years you're going to see a lot more of these new plants popping up Now's probably a good time to pivot to macro, 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 macro. We got John R here. John, welcome. How are you? What's up, guys? I've been enjoying the mining discussion with some people who know much more about what's going on in mining and the latest headlines and the whole industry than I do. So appreciate that from everyone. Um, I'll give you a few thoughts, Sam. What I was thinking of macro-wise was your conversation with Bob E. from a few days ago. I was getting through it over the last few days myself and uh, definitely enjoyed that one, man. There's a lot of takeaways there. I think the big one is just zooming out and realizing that you've got a guy who is a professional investor for a living, long, successful career at uh, Bridgewater. Right? Bridgewater for him, I, I believe? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Bridgewater, obviously, you know, world's biggest hedge fund. Um, and he's not coming on, you know, he's first off, he's coming on Swan Signal that like that in and of itself is, you know, kind of a big deal. And then he's not trashing Bitcoin. He's not saying it's a Ponzi scheme. I'll fire anybody who uh, buys it. Uh, you know, it's a complete joke. He's not saying anything like that. Um, I thought there were a bunch of telling statements he made that were interesting. He compared it to Uber with the upside optionality. And he's like, yeah, you know, if you told people 10 years ago, they might never take a taxi cab again and they'd be using their app and ordering Ubers, like they probably wouldn't believe it. But, you know, there's some upside potential there. Um, some other stuff that he said about the ETF, uh, I thought was very interesting and how that world works. Um, some of that was, was news to me. I never really worked in the world of uh, ETFs. It was always like security level stuff for me. So I didn't really know that. Um, also thought it was interesting that he said, and Sam, you can correct me if I'm getting this stat wrong, but I believe he said, historically, the data shows that in times of stock market sell-offs, gold outperforms bonds 60% of the time. Yeah. Um, and he just had a great line that he was like, if, you know, given that's the case, you know, it doesn't mean you need to switch your entire allocation from bonds to gold but your opening bid would not be zero for gold. Like you would think that people would look at that and say, okay, I should own some gold 
if I'm going to own some bonds. Um, but it's just interesting if you look at what people actually hold, it's just not reflected. Um, you guys talked about that chart that said some estimate was like uh, 70%-ish of, I'm not sure what investors it was, but I guess they tried to survey. What, what was that? What's the stats? 70, 71% of financial advisors have little to no exposure to gold. Okay. Financial advisors. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously a big pool of capital. So like their starting bid basically is zero because I think it said zero to 1% in gold. So um, I just thought he, he brought like a lot of level-headed comments to, to the discussion. Um, thought it was a good one. And then I believe it turned into a Twitter thread where he and, and Lynn Alden chimed in. Um, I haven't gone through that whole thread yet, but that, that looked fantastic. like um, a good one as well. Yeah, so like, like Bob, I would say Bob is like, you know, skeptical of Bitcoin, maybe neutral on Bitcoin. But I've been trying to have more conversations like that to try to kind of build bridges. And I thought it was a good conversation. But yeah, that thread, like I responded um, to Bob and I, he's like, it depends on the usefulness of this technology. And I said something like, you know, I would say a peer to peer essentially surfaces bit money that can settle with finality at a fraction of the cost of traditional payment methods is already pretty useful today. It's just not widely known. And then Bob responded and then Lynn comes in and it was kind of like tagging in like the, the MVP, you know, <laughs> just kind of backed off from there and Lynn just took over. <laughs> and like Lynn's just amazing. I mean, she, she wrote these very thoughtful posts in that thread and you could tell Bob like, the gears are turning and at the end of that thread he ended up buying Lynn's book and i think that book for bob is the perfect book for him the to read broken money that lynn wrote i mean it's, that's like the perfect audience for that book to try to get them to understand uh, the value proposition of bitcoin and that's kind of what we're trying to do and you know i just really enjoyed talking to bob and somebody with his experience um like you said he was on the investment committee at bridgewater and now he's focusing on etfs and so I really uh, enjoyed the conversation, learned a lot from it. His ETF comments were really fascinating as well, how there's like tax advantages for the uh, the issuer, the sponsor of the ETF uh, to kind of move around funds in a tax efficient way. So it's beneficial for them as well as it's more efficient for the, the customers as well uh, to get access to things like ETFs. So I, I didn't really know any of that, but his views on the Bitcoin ETF was that it would, you know, be constructive. Um, and I just thought it was a fascinating conversation, but I would point everyone to that thread with Lynn because Lynn just puts on a master class once again of how to, uh, you know, uh, build bridges as well as to get people on our side. I thought it was great. For sure. For sure. And I've got to look at that whole thread. I didn't get a chance to go through it yet. That's awesome. I did not see that Bob uh, either said he's buying the book um, or said he's bought it. That That's fantastic. Uh, couldn't agree with you more, Sam. Like building those bridges is definitely more valuable with TradFi people. It's sometimes easy for us to be like, oh, they're just idiot TradFi people, have fun staying poor, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe sometimes that's warranted for people who are just like really with their head in the sand and they like aggressively trash Bitcoin in very stupid ways. But for people like Bob who are just willing to like hear you out, they'll give you his view, he'll give you his own view. Um, he's got really good experience investing. It just makes a ton of sense to to build bridges there. So that was a good one, good good combo, man. I'm glad you guys did it. Yeah, um, Jacob put it in the thread and the, the NAS, like the thread, and 
I wanted to maybe read it like, so Bob was kind of comparing it as more of a technology and kind of comparing it to an improved Western Union and how it's not like so much to store value but technology. And I just want to read what Lynn wrote and it might take a little bit to read through, but I think it's worth it. because I think she makes a fantastic analogy and she says, comparing Bitcoin to Western Union is inadequate because Western Union is a centralized money transfer business. I can't store money in Western Union and then permissionlessly deploy it later. It's just a permission payment system. Similarly, I can store value in gold, but can't do much with it as money without relying on abstraction or credit. So I agree with you that scarcity alone is insufficient. An analogy I would like to use is to imagine three cars. One has an engine, but no steering wheel. The second has a steering wheel, but no engine. The third has both a steering wheel and an engine. How much better is the third car than either of the first two cars? Is it twice as good because it has both? Or is it orders of magnitude better because the whole is greater than the parts and opens up an entirely new capability, driving? Bitcoin is thus far the best thing for that regarding money. It has not just scarcity of units, but also has its own decentralized global settlement capability built into it. And so that's just uh, the brilliance of Lynn Alden right there. But I just love that analogy. So that, that was fantastic. And that actually, I think, is related to something that also caught my attention and I thought was a very interesting topic or I mean, it has been an interesting topic in Bitcoin's entire history. But um, since Wicked is here, uh, <clears throat> this basically brings up the idea of like Bitcoin scaling. It might like, I obviously agree with everything Lynn said, but in a future world, it kind of assumes that Bitcoin will get to the point where everyone can use it in some sort of trust minimized way. And then it gets into this, long conversation loaded conversation about like how does bitcoin scale do we we all kind of i think at this point in time believe that fees on the base layer will be pretty expensive um and i believe wicked you were tagged into this uh thread with with peter and i just wanted to hear any thoughts you had to to say on that and our i, I didn't get to see where all of it go all of it went but Curious your thoughts on it and if you're going to have like a bigger conversation with him about it. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I will or not. Um, and I don't think I'm the expert really to, <laughs> to talk about this. I bring it up a lot because it is something that I find fascinating because I don't think we really have a solution yet to it. But that being said, I mean, I think what we do have currently just in terms of the, the tech stack is the ability to have, you know, this permissionless base layer monetary asset, which is Bitcoin. And this will be permissionless and trustless for the custodians who are lucky enough to have gotten in early enough to have enough <laughs> to actually spend it. So, I mean, all of us here will likely have enough Bitcoin in the future when fees rise to continue using the base layer if we choose to. All the institutions who get in early enough will have enough Bitcoin on their balance sheets to continue using it in that way. And many of us may even turn into custodians ourselves for our friends and loved ones, or we might stand up our own, you know, federated mints or, you know, things like this. So I think Bitcoin ultimately on its base layer remains trustless for those who can use it, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not for everyone, but it is for anyone, anyone who joins early enough and has enough capital to deploy. And then for everyone else who either is too late or doesn't care or too poor, um, they'll have trust 
and they'll have to find the best trusted custodians to place that trust in, right? So what makes Bitcoin beautiful is that, you know, it's like the base layer keeps us honest. So even in this world where, you know, 99% of the population still needs trust, if any of your custodians fuck around, they're going to find out pretty quickly. So, you know, that's, that's the difference with Bitcoin as the, the, the monetary base layer. Yeah, that, 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 thanks, Wicked. And yeah, like I said, this one's a really loaded topic. I, it's, it's almost, it's very interesting to me. There's like so many short-term things we could talk about with Bitcoin and macro and, you know, is the ETF going to get approved and what's the Fed doing? And, oh, look at this new entity or wealthy person, you know, adopted Bitcoin. And that's all like super short-term stuff. And it's interesting for sure. Like we, we should definitely talk about it. But then there's almost there's like this other topic, like long term scaling. How do we get Bitcoin to a place where eight billion people can use it in a trust minimized way? And they're just like two totally different conversations, but they're both like fascinating and important. Um, and Lynn did chime in on uh, the Peter McCormick thread as well, talking about um, lightning and Fediment. So that would be another one that I would recommend people check out. For sure. Let's let's talk about some short term things though, John. <laughs> we I um saw this. So there's this guy, there's this guy on Twitter called AP Abacus. And I've been following him for a while and kind of realized that he must have some sources inside because he has been kind of right about a lot of things early um when it comes to like regulatory announcements. So I've kind of gained some trust in him over the last year or so. And so he just tweeted something and he said, update, SEC meetings with spot Bitcoin ETF issuers have been voluminous. Uh, SEC source 99% approval and all at once. Dotted I's and cross T's across all applications. Grayscale is doing all it can to be the first conversion based on court decision. And that's what he uh, tweeted out this morning. So if he's right, Planning to do a 99% approval of the spot Bitcoin ETFs, and they're planning to do it all at once. And they're just dotting I's and crossing T's right now. And Grayscale's really going hard to try to be the first one. And so, just a little update on the ETF stuff that I thought I should share. As long as the Nest, can you post that in the Nest, or is that, or can you say the name again? Thank you. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm just <clears throat> I'm just praying that the ETF doesn't get approved while we're in Vegas next week for unconfiscatable. This would be a very dangerous place to have an ETF approved and and like a run up. It's it's extremely dangerous. I probably would leave if it gets approved. Sorry, Tone. I probably <laughs> I, would, I, I, I pack up and I take off and just head home. Tom, you're cracking me up, man. Yeah, you don't you don't want to have too many thing too many good things happen when you're in Vegas. <laughs> yeah, James, a couple, uh, 
James, couple James drinks, Seifert. he's sitting at the blackjack table, and all of a sudden you're looking, you're like, okay, let's 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 go a little wild here. Have you have you paid your entry yet, Dom? Okay, <clears throat> no, just shut no, up, no, Dom. When you I'm pay not. your entry, you can come on here and and talk about the, the the poker tournament as much as you want, okay? But until then, we're talking about we're talking about the ETF, buddy. Listen, if I pay my entry, that bumps you from 99th place to 100th. So you should hope I don't, don't pay an entry. <laughs> uh, James Seifert, who's a Bloomberg uh, reporter, uh, he is also saying there's a 90, 90% chance that the ETF is approved in the January 5th to 10th window. To me, it's... Uh, I think he's been saying that for a while, but yeah. Yeah, I don't, it's just it's not that much news that Grayscale is meeting with the SEC because the courts literally basically told them they had to do that. Um, but it is interesting that they're like meeting with BlackRock and these other ETF issuers. Um, that's, that's interesting to me. I mean, doesn't that kind of signal what a lot of people have said, which is that they're going to want to approve multiple at the same time when they eventually do? Is that how you should read that? Yeah, that makes sense to me. That'd be very arbitrary to pick one. And so it would make sense to approve a batch or a bunch. And then you'd be in the situation where there'd be a competition between the ETFs, which is what you see in other, you know, gold mining ETFs, for instance, or gold ETFs. They offer different perks to try to attract customers, whether that's changing the fees. Um, certain gold ETFs allows... Uh, customers to redeem real physical gold while others don't so maybe one day we'll see ETFs that allow take self-custody like who knows um but i think a competition is good if they approve a bunch at once for those that are tracking the technicals or playing racquetball with larry fink terrence i'm talking about you um is there anything standing in the way technically of a mass approval across the board early other than I know there's the comment periods that were pushed back and I know that it's extremely unlikely that they do that. But is there any technical? I mean, could the SEC theoretically next week just say, yeah, they're all approved? I think so. But that's like saying, um, well, America suddenly have zero Christians by end of the year theoretically possible and not going to happen. I don't see it happening. Happy to bet against, again, Dom, you want to lose more money, but I think you're going to screw yourself in Vegas at unconfiscatable. So maybe I'll be nice. Hey, I tried to bet you in sats, but you know, you, uh, you were, yeah, that's that's a bullshit that because the sats will be worth a lot more if, you know, you're right. So then I have to pay out more in US in in uh, non SAT terms and dollar terms. So it's stupid. Like it's a it's a bullshit bet to denominate in SATs. Terrence, you know Larry would lend that to you interest free, no problem. No, he's seeding his uh, ETF. He he told you that. He, he told me he told you that. So He's oh, busy he, seeding his he, ETF. Terrence, with many, he's admitting many it, Dom. He's admitting that he's talking to no, Larry. No, I said Dom told me. I said Dom told me he talks to Larry. See, all you guys, all you guys just project, right? So when you Dom's talking about how I'm talking to Larry, he's talking about how he talks to Larry. He's just too humble to admit it. 
That's not true. Hey, I, I did a joint workspace with Terrence the other day, and he came late <clears throat> out of the elevator with the, you know, when they have the towel tucked around the neck under the sweatshirt. And I'm like, dude, where are you coming from? He's like, here, racquetball got nuts with Leonard, this, this. And I was like, who's Leonard? He's like, sorry, that's Larry's full name, Christian name. Yeah, that's Terrence living that Larry life. Bitcoin's making a little run right now. We're just kind of tap 39. Oh, annual highs. Yeah, I need to go do my live stream just waiting for the space to end, having enjoyed the combo here. Tone, I think I think uh, Dom is is waiting for a discount on the uh, poker tournament. Uh, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's not how poker tournaments work. <laughs> no, he means... Tone, he thinks he means I'm waiting for the Bitcoin price to drop down to for the buy-in. Hey, uh, 0.03 Bitcoin will always be 0.03 Bitcoin. Uh, you know, you know when we put the tournament up for sale, it was exactly about a year ago because we did it for like uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas last year, and Bitcoin was sitting at fifteen thousand. So I'm like, all right, what should we denominate the tournament in? Because it's going to stay denominated in Sat. So 0.03 Bitcoin was like 400 bucks, which is usually where we price it. Uh, but now it's about to be 1200. But hey, everyone that paid 0.03 uh, a year ago, you know, that's still there. That's still going to be part of the prize money denominated in sats. So it's all fair. It's just becoming a high stakes poker tournament because of the fiat appreciation. Yeah, a, yeah lot can happen, well, a lot can happen in a week. That thing could be the new World Series of Poker, dude, by next week. You never know. It's possible. We are looking at about 50 players. Uh, so it's half the field of last year. So it makes it easier to win that watch. I don't know if you guys saw. I don't know if I tweeted it out. I only posted it in the group chats. Uh, the custom watch that only one is made per year. You know, half the field, easier to win the first prize. Last year, the second place winner was like a Bitcoin OG. And he asked the guy who won the whole thing, I'll give you second place prize money for the watch. And second place prize money was still like 20 grand or something like that. And he turned it down. He said, I'm going to keep the watch. Am I going to have to report my, uh, my winnings when I, when I take first place tone? Yeah, I'm not, not a tax advisor. Um, so um, my, my, my answer to all tax uh, questions is you pay the least amount you can legally get away with. So in other words, if I win, I can consider $16,000 of it as a, as a gift, right? I actually have no idea. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll... Uh, yeah, think of it as like you 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 bet like a uh, a couple of chickens and you're being paid in uh, you know more chickens. I love chicken. Yeah, I I feel like there's a lot of excitement around the ETF, which is driving some of this price action. But then there's also you know one interesting statistic of the last month was that bonds had the best month since 1980 after getting slaughtered uh, for most of the year and it's just a sign that maybe people think 
that uh, rates have kind of peaked and that the Fed's going to start cutting. You saw Christopher Waller, who's on the FOMC board. I when he talks, I listen. You have a lot of like Fed speakers always having microphones and speaking, but a lot of them don't really matter. But Waller is like Paul's right hand man and usually speaks as like a proxy for Paul. And he said something along the lines of, you know, he thinks that rates have maybe peaked. And it seems like the market's kind of reacting to that. And you have Deutsche Bank now coming out saying that the S&P is going to hit all-time highs next year. Um, so this like this this lauded soft landing, it, like the market seems to really, really believe in it. And John, I don't know if you had thoughts about any of that, but I think that's kind of helping uh, be a tailwind for the price of these risk assets or perceived risk assets. Yeah, I was just looking at uh, just a, like a big list of broad macro assets and what they've done just in the past month. And, um, you know, QQQ is up like 10 or 11%. Um, SPY is up like 9%. So risk assets have definitely rallied. Um, that probably opens the door for the haters to say things like, oh, look, Bitcoin's just rallying because other things are rallying, like a uh, Robin Brooks type guy. I'm not sure if you follow him on uh, Twitter, but he made that case lately. He's like, "Oh, it's just correlated with uh, with um, Fed cycles." So you know, why would you care about Bitcoin? Um, but we we don't have to pick that one apart right now. Um, yeah, I, th- I think in general, it's uh, that's definitely a factor um, causing Bitcoin's price to rise. Um, I also just wanted to throw a comment out there. I'm seeing some of the chatter on Twitter. People are talking about the ETF and how if it's going to get approved and if these these banks really do believe that they, banks and asset managers, believe that they have a 90% chance or some high chance of getting approval, then they're likely already working on their marketing of, of the ETF. And some of these tweets are pretty funny just thinking about like, like they literally might be scripting commercials, you know, Super Bowl FTX style for their Bitcoin ETF. And that's just a, Hilarious thought. Also seeing gold rally pretty hard right now, at least for gold, uh, which is another interesting data point. It's clear 2000. And it seems like it has momentum now. It's uh, kind of running up right now. Just another interesting data point because you have gold rallying with risk assets. It's just it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, you got that inverse correlation with rates and gold that typically holds true. And if this is peak rates that people seem to be believing, that's the narrative right now. Obviously, that could change at the drop of a hat. But right now, it seems like main narrative consensus narrative is Fed paused. We saw peak rates when, you know, a few months ago. Um, and even today, you look at like the two years down 14 base points, five years down 13 base points. So you're Fairly big moves historically, although last few years, like having them move 10 basis points in a day is, is actually not as crazy in the last few years. But there, there were points in time, you know, a decade or more ago where a uh, 10 basis point move at any point in the yield curve was, was a, a big move. But that's uh, become more normal. But with rates going down, gold tends to go up. Um, so I, I think that's definitely part of... Uh, part of what's driving gold. And, and I, and I also think Bitcoin to a certain extent.
Does anyone want to share a view on what happens? I know this is the million dollar question. If any of us knew, um, that would be great. But like, do we think it's, are, are, is, are people in the Bitcoin community going to be kicking themselves if, let's just say, ETFs get approved in January um, and there is a flood of capital that goes into them and the price pumps to, to some, some amount? I don't, I don't want to say like something insane, like not like all-time highs in a, in a week or anything like that, but like a significant pump. Do we think that that's still going to catch even hardcore Bitcoiners off card and it's going to be like, damn, this was so simple. Like, why did I not position myself better beforehand? Um, always. <laughs> I, say, I say always, John. This is the big dilemma, right? It's like, you know things are going to happen and you try to balance the, the, the seesaw between responsible and recklessly aping in as much as you can. And no matter what, every time you just go like, why do I still have six liters of blood in my body? Like I could have sold two liters easily. And what was I doing? Like I, I was short. I messed up. I, I don't think that, I don't think the OGs really care to be honest with you. I mean, I've heard quite a few of them talking about how they have not been um, uh, appropriately exposed. Um, but I, I think, I think this is one of the things. Maybe some of the some of some of the older guys can speak to this, but I think this is one of the things that happens as you go through multiple cycles. You just you 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 just you know that eventually there's going to be um, a retracement of some sort, and I think you just don't care after a certain point. I, I, that's the impression that I get when I when I listen to these guys. They're kind of like, well, yeah, I guess I wasn't appropriately positioned this time, but it doesn't seem like they. They are terribly upset about it. I'm not like uh, OG OG, but this is third bull cycle for me. I've really started buying in like 2016, but I shitcoined for a while, so had to learn my lessons there. But um, I feel like, I don't know, for me, the longer I've been around, especially now, I'm at a point where it's like I can't really, aside from taking on leverage, allocate anymore at this point so it's like the price moves don't really impact me as much you, you can't really like fomo in if there's nothing left i don't i don't have any chairs left you know so like what do i even do <laughs> yeah i would say you are fully positioned my friend if, if your next move is to take on leverage then i i consider that to be fully fully positioned you know maybe experienced people can take on leverage if they understand the risks but i think there's a good amount of people who probably do have some reallocations they could do. You know, they haven't been fully positioned or all in, however you want to phrase it. And then, I, I mean, even the last year is, a, is like a small example of this. I, I would bet there's a ton of people who spend most of their time looking at Bitcoin. And, you know, were they buying at 16 and, and 20 around there? Like, probably they were. But then when you started the year and we saw the price rise, I bet a lot of people were like, damn, I saw this coming, but I didn't really take advantage of it. I, I think part of it is just human nature. I, I think that happens. Yeah, you know, you guys are like absolutely nailing it. If you're at a point where you're, you're discussing having to take leverage, which I obviously never recommend, uh, but you're pretty good. And it you know, reminds me of the last drawdown from 20,000 to, excuse me, 3,400. I'm at that time, and those were the times to be stacking, just like, those of us been around for a while knew, you know, from 69 down to under 20,000, down to 15, 16, everyone's waiting for, man, that was a time to be doing it. 
uh, you should, that's when you, you know, really should have thought long and hard about, all right, let me look at the, the history of these cycles and what we're doing. Um, here, if, if you're depending upon, if you're waiting or waiting and depending upon an ETF, um, I, I guess that's okay. Uh, your, your stacking to me should always be about more of just at your own pace and at your own comfort level is transitioning uh, your fiat, okay, from the system into Bitcoin at, at, a, at a timing and um, risk level that you are comfortable with. That's the big thing, man. You want to be sleeping at night. So please, yeah, do not, do not go out and take a second mortgage on your home to, to you know, just ape in more on Bitcoin thinking that there's going to be an ETF. But yeah, you guys are, I think that's absolutely excellent advice you guys are giving there, man. Yeah, just to be clear, I was definitely not advocating for uh, leverage. That's why I've gotten up. To oh, yeah. The only way I could go more all in would be to take leverage. But just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> uh, you have a check engine light on in your car? What was that? The check engine light? Do you have it on in your car yet? I don't own a car. I have a company vehicle. That's it. Not bullish. Yeah. Your, your car needs to have a check engine light or else you short Bitcoin. So. Yeah, we got, <laughs> a tire, I got a tire pressure light <laughs> I, on. I already sold my car. <laughs> like, what That's do you mean? True too. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I literally don't own a vehicle. I, I will say one thing, though. Um, like, OG saw some pretty big percentage gains that I don't think you'll see those gains again. Like, I mean, if you got into Bitcoin and say, like, you know, a couple pennies and Bitcoin went to a dollar, it's a pretty big percentage gain. So, like, even if Bitcoin goes to a million dollars, you know, like, it's it, the numbers are big, but percentage wise, it's smaller. So, like, you know, when you're seeing less percentage go throughout the years, you start caring a little less and less. Yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, just the nature of exactly what you're saying there, like as as market cap gets bigger, it's literally impossible, like the capital inflows that would be required to move the price. Um, I mean, unless, you know, there's super low liquidity, but either way, like you just need so much money to flow in, in general, to really move it percentage wise substantially that, yeah, you're not going to see. I don't think anybody's going to be doing a hundred X from here in a, in a couple year period. Unfortunately, those days are probably gone, but it's still going to, in my opinion, outperform pretty much everything else. I mean, I think that's why all of us are in this room. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, if you got into Bitcoin, when it was $15,000, then you obviously, you know, these are big percentage gains. But if you got into Bitcoin, when it was $200 or a hundred dollars, it's a little bit less. Yeah, exactly. I want to, um, Dr. Jeff, I see you on the stage. I wanted to get maybe your quick macro minute, if you will, if you don't mind. How you yeah. how are you viewing things right now? Yeah, hey Sam, thanks for having me up. And uh, I actually it was John's uh, question that that uh, uh, drove me to come up here, just because as a fund manager and you know RIA, um, you know based on past cycles, I still have a price target of about forty to forty five k by having day, which is now a little less than five months away, uh, which would still be a pretty nice return. But because of what you brought up, and and just for people who you know, it, it was uh, several minutes ago that you brought it up, uh, but the potential of an ETF, a spot Bitcoin ETF approval, and the potential upside. Um, because of that, that basically forced me into, as a fund manager, I, I was planning on sort of slowly increasing our Bitcoin-related allocation. 
um, to basically uh, to the point of the having, and then into the summer of 2024, where we would be basically fully positioned. But because of this potential upside, the opportunity cost I think of not owning Bitcoin right now is massive. Uh, so, so it you know there there is a chance that it will just quickly pop above 50, 70, even 100k if this does get approved. I'm not saying it will happen, but there is a chance that it will happen. Uh, and if you're sitting on the sidelines waiting for you know sub 30k bitcoin again to to happen um you're you may get just totally left in the dust and we may not see those prices again so to your point as an actual fund manager and capital allocator i i uh fast forwarded our allocation by about nine months because of the possible uh spot bitcoin etf approval um getting sam to your question john do you have a comment yeah dr jeff are you saying that my eleven thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollar limit order is probably not in play here Hey man, you never know. I, you know, keep hanging on. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you're not still trying to get off zero percent, but I have a, I have a feeling you're not. So we'll see. Yeah, my, my, if you know, if I had to guess, I would say um, there's like maybe a, a one to two percent chance we go below twenty five k again if everything falls apart and the floor drops out uh, from a macro perspective. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't wait on that. I certainly don't think it's going below twenty k again, um, but you know, could be wrong. We'll see. Um, and then Sam real quick. So, um, uh, you know, I look at everything from liquidity, net liquidity has bottomed again in, uh, in the end of September of 2023, similar to what it did actually in the end of 2022, uh, and has since been rising. Uh, the, the thing that follows us net liquidity most closely is actually small cap us stocks. Uh, they've had a nice rebound since then, as most people have probably noticed. I also look at worldwide liquidity has been just kind of slowly creeping higher, nothing major, but uh, continuing to creep higher. Um, that's positive. Uh, we, you know, you guys were talking about rates and, and Waller's speech and all this kind of thing. I, I definitely think the Fed is done. So I think the Fed pause rally is for real. I think that's part of what we're seeing. Um, risk assets tend to like it uh, when rates start to head lower. The one thing I'm, I'm a little bit cognizant of, or, you know, if, if I were concerned in the near term, it's that uh, you, you often see this towards the end of these rallies where where the the um, long term interest yields peak and then roll over. And then you get a blow off top in equities. Um, that's actually pretty common when you look at past um, uh, recessions. And then and then equities tend to get hit pretty hard and pretty quickly as we officially enter into recession. So there is a chance we have something like that. If we do have that and we're sort of in the middle of a blow off top right now, I would expect that based on a historical precedent to last any time uh, time between kind of the end of December through the end of February. Um, that would be uh, something to look for. Like if we have this blow off top and you see like NASDAQ stocks go up another 20, 30% or so from here, I'd be careful uh, that, that we, you know, we could get a, a pretty substantial drop. I'm still nervous uh, in the long run uh, for uh, equities in general. Um, the valuations on tech stocks and especially, you know, the Magnificent Seven are just crazy they're they're crazy crazy high valuations and it's because everybody is is still holding on to these and everybody is still believing the ai narrative you know these these are amazing companies and they should be at high valuations but they're just obnoxiously high uh and i look at this guy uh sam and and john you guys probably know um john hussman he puts out some fantastic uh um, work I, i can't get his charts out of my head basically based on current valuations we would we should expect negative nominal 
equity returns over the next 12 years, nominal returns. That's, that's, that's not even talking about inflation. Um, so that's pretty wild. And I, I, that, that chart haunts me. As, a, as again, as an asset allocator and fund manager, uh, I actually think about getting completely out of equities uh, for most of this decade, uh, especially at these current valuations, and getting into things like an, um, um, like senior loans, um, corporate debt, uh, and then obviously Bitcoin. So, so you know, I, I'm not super bullish on equities going forward. Although we could have a continued blow off top that could last for a little bit longer. So that was way longer than one minute, Sam, and I know we're over. I'll stop there. I have a lot more I can say, but um, yeah, thanks for. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. And unfortunately, we're out of time. But luckily, Dr. Jeff, you're coming on Swan Signal next week with uh, Eric Basmagian, who is another TradFi guy who puts out fantastic macro research if you guys don't follow him. Um, so excited to have that conversation next week. So if you like what Dr. Jeff said, tune into Swan Signal Live. And um, thanks for everyone for joining today. All the speakers, it was a great conversation. This was Cat Pay Bitcoin, the number one day morning brought to you by swan.com bitcoin financial services company uh this is also your last time to lock in super early bird ticket prices for pacific bitcoin next year you can get a full refund in february and so if you're thinking about going now's the time to do it uh, you can always do a full refund in february you can do it at really cheap prices so check it out at pacificbitcoin.com and uh just thanks for everybody for your support and listening this is another great episode of cafe bitcoin It's an honor to host it, um, and thanks, everybody, and have a wonderful Friday. Have a great weekend.